New Thinking Allowed, conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with parapsychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today, we will be exploring the dance of the opposites in American politics. My guest is my good friend, Glenn Aparicio Perry, who is the author of Original Thinking, A Radical Revisioning of Time, Nature, and Humanity, as well as Original Politics, Making America Sacred Again. This is an internet interview, and now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Glenn. It's a pleasure to be with you once again. Ah, Jeff, the same. Thank you. Always a pleasure to be with you. In our previous discussion, we talked about the very significant influence of Native American culture on the founding of the United States government. And as we close that discussion, you pointed out that the, uh, the memory of this close relationship between the founders and the Native Americans, uh, amongst whom they lived, in the early years of of the republic got forgotten because of the um native american removal act yeah the indian removal act of 1830 yeah the it really is andrew jackson who changes everything uh, andrew jackson is a unique president in so many ways i tried my hardest to give a a fair view of him. He's not my favorite president. One of my least favorite, actually. I prefer not to use $20 bills if I can. But still, um, and that's a hard thing, by the way. Um, you know, Andrew Jackson is the first president, the seventh, he's the seventh president of the United States, if we count after the Constitution is signed, as most people count. And he's the first president who does not come from the aristocracy. Um, it doesn't mean he was poor because he made good money in real estate before he became president. So there, there, he, he, he was, a, but his money was self-made as opposed to being born wealthy. Um, and as such, he always was an advocate for the common man. As long as the common man was male and white. <laughs> So, but you know, I'll give him some credit that he truly was a populist. You know, unlike our our forty fifth president, who is a faux populist, who pretends to be a populist. Andrew Jackson truly was a populist. He was for the common man. He took on the second national bank, and actually, he hated banks because he thought banks were for wealthy people only and they didn't care about the common person, which there's some truth in what he's saying, you know, some truth, but I think it's an extreme view. Um, and so he, he actually put the Second National Bank out of business. He, he famously says to Martin Van Buren, the Second National Bank is trying to kill me, but I will kill it. And he proceeded to do exactly that. You know, he, he didn't, run funds through the second national bank. He put them out of business. It's unbelievable. You know, um, and because of that, the business community got really pissed off at Andrew Jackson and they started a whole new political party, the Whig party. 
which becomes the party of Lincoln, um, and then eventually becomes the Republican Party of Lincoln. So Andrew Jackson is so pivotal in American history. Now, the reason why I have some, uh, you know, distaste for Andrew Jackson is because he's also the single biggest force for ethnic cleansing in America, you know, and, uh, uh, and he is the president who changed the way Native Americans were viewed. I argue that for the first 50 years of American history, Native Americans were were mostly seen as, as uh, allies. You know, there was the, yes, there were Indian wars that date all the way from the 17th century, but it's really not till the 19th century that a mass extermination campaign begins, and it begins under Andrew Jackson. He's this force for ethnic cleansing. He decides that that in the interest of national security, he needs to attack the non-white population. And so he goes after first first the Creek, uh, the Muscogee tribe actually are having a civil war. And Andrew Jackson used that as the pretense to attack the entire Creek nation. This is a war of 1813 to 1814. This is the war where Andrew Jackson gets his legacy because he got wounded in the war and his troops barely survived it, but they eventually prevailed militarily. And he gets this kind of hardened image. He's sort of the Ronald Reagan, you know, precursor to Ronald Reagan. He's the kind of a movie star president or something. He's got this tough boy image, you know. Um, the Cherokee later call him Sharp Knife, but that comes later. So he takes on the creek. Then he goes after the Seminole, who are in Florida. But, there is, but it isn't Florida then. It's the Spanish territory, you know. Um, and he goes after the Seminole. And he was, his first charge was he was supposed to establish a beachhead there. Um, that's what he was given charge for. But he exceeds his mandate totally. And he hires a private army. And he not only decimates the Seminole, he also decimates the black population in Florida. And he, his goal is to make this a safe haven for white settlers. And he was breaking both U.S. law and international law when he did that. It was an illegal war he raged, but all was forgiven when this Adams Onus Treaty comes about and Florida becomes part of the United States. So he gets rid of the Seminole. Um, he goes next after, uh, I think, the Choctaw um, and, and the Chickasaw. And he always goes after these tribes in this very slick way. Um, Professor Walter Johnson described it really clearly in his book. And what he does is he first threatens to, to kill the tribe or to, to take the tribe with force with nothing in return. He lets that sit for a while. Then he bribes a small portion of the tribe, um, giving them money, basically, and then he, he signs a treaty with that small portion and claims that they represent the whole tribe when they don't. So he repeatedly does this tactic. And that's how he takes on the Chickasaw and the Choctaw and eventually the Cherokee. 
And and none of these tribes were amused by this. I mean, they they pledged that they would not give up any of more land with you know not surrender another drop of blood. But let me talk about the Cherokee because that is the most that's the one that's the most well known because we've all heard about the Cherokee Trail of Tears. Well, when Jackson took on the Cherokee, they who were a very unusual tribe in a lot of ways and had adopted some of uh, Western customs, um, they decided to fight back in the, in, through legal means. And they took the case, and they, they first they lost, and they tried to claim that they were a sovereign nation and they couldn't be pushed around. They lost, but they appealed it all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court and won and they won because they had some gifted attorneys who found a loophole that said that white populations were not supposed to settle next to Indian lands, um, and uh, uh, and they won. They won. I mean, that law was supposedly to was was put in place for a totally different reason. It was just trying to prevent missionaries from protecting the Indians settling next to the Indians. So. But they used that loophole and they won in the U.S. Supreme Court. But then what happened? We, we always hear that the, the United States is a country of the rule of law, governed by the rule of law. But that did not happen when the Cherokee won because uh, the state of Alabama ignored the law and Andrew Jackson did nothing, nothing to enforce it because Andrew Jackson was ruthless. He wanted the Cherokee moved. And when he did do that Indian Removal Act, he literally rounded up the Cherokee at bayonet point, not giving them time to get their clothes, anything, you know, any backup clothing, and marched them 1,200 miles. And of course, like 4,000 Cherokee died on what was known as the Trail of Tears. And really, the, other, the last point I want to make is just that that was not the end. That was the beginning of the next hundred years of the United States uh, ruthlessly trying to either kill or round up Indians and move them to reservations. It started with Andrew Jackson in 1830. It's interesting. Now, Jackson uh, was is regarded as uh, one of the founders of the Democratic Party, but uh, the Democratic Party has since moved almost 180 degrees away from the kinds of policies that he represented. Yes, that's a major point in my book. And it's a major point of my own thinking that in time, everything turns into its opposite. So, um, and the political parties are fixated upon each other. And I compare them to dance partners dancing on the dance floor. And while you're, you're watching the movements of your partner and reacting to the movements of, of, of your partner um, or your opponent in a political campaign, then eventually you end up on different places on the dance floor. As William Irwin Thompson said, we become what we hate. It's pretty profound because when you're fixated on something and you hate on it, you can then, you know, you eventually adopt it because you you become unconscious. You're just doing the opposite of your opponent. I mean, you can see that in modern times. You can see that right now in the 
so-called Republican Party, which is a party that has been co-opted by Trump, a party that previously was the strongest party against Russia, for instance, which is now uh, still, there's still some pushback from the Republican Party that has prevented Trump from uh, uh, being quite as obsequious as he wants to with Russia, but there, but it's not the same party. It doesn't have the same convictions. Things have changed, and we just don't know what's going to happen. Let, let's go back, uh, because you point out that this dynamic between liberalism and conservatism, this dance of the opposites, that you call it, really goes back to uh, a, a war of pamphlets in the uh, founding of our country, a war between Thomas Paine, uh, considered the great liberal pamphleteer, and Edmund Burke, a conservative. Yeah, I... I enjoyed writing that chapter. That's the first chapter in part two, actually. And I wanted to clearly lay out the dance of the opposites. And I really wanted to look at at uh, Thomas Paine and Edmund Burke, not to determine who's right. There's books like that, but because I don't see it as one being right or the other being wrong. I see them as, as compliments. They complete a full picture. And that's the way I see liberalism and conservatism. Uh, a liberal action begets a conservative response, and a conservative action begets a liberal response. Um, Thomas Paine was really a tremendous idealist, and many of the things that he believed in are deeply embedded in the American psyche. The concept of unalienable rights, the concept of the natural rights of man, um, and I claim that he got those from Native America. Now, Thomas Paine himself was very reticent to reveal his sources. He claimed he just thought of things. Um, he, he, he was not a person who cited very freely. But it was true that Thomas Paine was he introduced to the country, America actually brought to the country by Ben Franklin, who had very close relations with Native Americans. I mean, it was just a chance meeting over in England between Ben Franklin and Thomas Paine, who, by the way, spelled his name P-A-I-N. I find that very humorous. At the time that Ben Franklin met him, wisely added an E, I would say, to his name after he came to America. Uh, and, Thomas, uh, and Ben Franklin writes a letter recommending Thomas Paine as this very young, brilliant, you know, uh, uh, enterprising man. And so, although Thomas Paine arrives very sick on the boat, once he recovered, he quickly became a success. And so much of a success that, I mean, his book, Common Sense, you know, was, uh, and other essays that he wrote um, were enormously uh, instrumental in buoying the morale of the troops, so much so that John Adams said that without the pen of Thomas Paine, the sword of George Washington would have been raised in vain. So that is how much Thomas Paine contributed to it. So he was very prescient in certain ways, but so was Thomas Burke. I mean, Thomas, uh, Edmund Burke, sorry. Edmund Burke, and a lot of people don't even associate conservatism in this way, but Edmund Burke comes out of the school of the romantics. Edmund Burke believes in poetry. He believes in emotions. He believes in, in, in 
in aligning oneself with the natural unfolding that you find in out in the natural world, you know? And and I agree with a lot of that. I think that makes a lot of sense. I think, you know, uh, sometimes we can be too idealistic and want to push something immediately when it really needs to unfold uh, in its own time. Um, you know, we don't think about that these days, particularly in America, because uh, American conservatives have gone so far from these kinds of roots and have just become aligned with uh, laissez-faire capitalism. But originally, uh, you know, pure, true conservatism of Edmund Burke would not approve of uh, destruction to the environment, would try to protect the environment, actually, would not approve of too rapid progress. So, you know, one of the ironies is that the liberal progressive mentality that, you know, we have forming in the Industrial Revolution and with the Scientific Revolution, that idea is what starts industry um, on a path that eventually really pollutes the earth. Everything's turned around now because it's the liberal progressives who are trying to save the earth and the conservatives in America who are trying to, uh, it seems, to destroy it. They don't really care. When you refer to Thomas Paine as an idealist, I gather that he his ideals were in alignment with uh, what was then known as the, and is still known as the European Enlightenment, the idea of overthrowing monarchs, uh, an idea that uh, the people can govern themselves based on uh, uh, principles such as inalienable rights and, and the idea of democracy. You know, the reason why uh, Paine and Burke are considered the progenitors of the left and right, the origin of that term comes from the French, in the French Revolution, where, you know, based on where you sat in the, in the chamber, on the, closer to the left of the monarch or to the right of the monarch. Um, and, uh, uh, and the funny thing is that Paine and Burke met because Edmund Burke supported the American Revolution. And so Paine, wa Paine wants to drum up support for the, for the coming French Revolution. So he goes to see uh, Edmund Burke and they have a dinner together. And he is surprised to find out that Edmund Burke, even though he supported the American Revolution, is not in support of the French Revolution. And that's one of uh, Burke's most famous books, you know, is about uh, the, the revolution in France. And, uh, and the reasons for his lack of support for that. See, Paine misunderstood. He thought that Burke supported the American Revolution because he saw, shared the same vision of the sacredness of America's purpose. But Burke really supported the American Revolution because he thought England had made it, had, had, had botched their colonial effort and that they should just get out um, because they weren't doing it right. So they really weren't on the same page. Um, and I think it's Thomas Jefferson that says that the revolution in France doesn't surprise me as much as the revolution in Burke, you know, because he, because he was also shocked that Burke did not support the French revolution. Burke was something of a traditionalist, I gather, that well, he believed in, in change, but the change should be slow, generally speaking. That's true. 
But it is confusing because Burke was part of the Whig party that did overthrow uh, one monarch and replaced it with William and Mary, a two, two reigning monarchs. So in that case, he claimed that he thought that an overthrow was necessary to keep the order, which is really you know, quite an unusual claim, but that's what, that's what he said. Um, so in certain instances, and I guess maybe human beings are not, you know, as perfect as their stated philosophies, you know, they may take different positions uh, that seem counter to what they're supposed to believe. Um, and uh, that is, uh, that seems to have been the case. But yeah, but in general, Burke had this concept of equipoise, and he wanted a balance between stability and change. Um, so he did want things to not move too swiftly. And I would contend that that is a necessary balance you have to have with politics. It probably is necessary to have idealists who are pushing for change that, uh, that, uh, will be good, but you also need, uh, uh, people counter, counterbalancing that so that you don't move too rapidly and uproot the society. But here's one of the most important points about this. Burke, Burke was pissed off at Paine. Or he disagreed with Paine because he thought Paine was too much of an abstract idealist. But here's what I don't think Burke understood. Paine took his abstract beliefs from observation of living Native American cultures. And those were not abstractions. Those were real. And that's probably why some of those things that we consider abstractions have become real, real and rooted in American culture. And that's where Paine had great genius. Because this idea of freedom and equality, all men being created equal, um, as much as that was not fully realized at the time, when it was really you know, really that all only white male property owners were equal. The seed idea, which came from Native America, has opened and blossomed over time. And that is beautiful. As I recall, one of the interesting arguments that Payne made, he was looking at Native American culture, and he noticed they didn't have courts, they didn't uh, have jails, they didn't have police, and uh, as opposed to European culture, they had all of these things. And he he seemed to feel that uh, the Native Americans uh, were better for th their way without all of these laws and uh, institutions. Yes, uh, I think that in the formation of the United States, um, there are a number of the political founding fathers who share this belief that the least amount of government is best. That was something that was uh, credited mostly to Thomas Jefferson, but both, but Payne and Ben Franklin, Washington and others observe that Yes, Native Americans didn't have these laws, these courts, these these you know mechanistic ways of enforcing a civil body politic. It was done through uh, more subtle means. They considered this to be the natural way that mankind began, and that was Thomas Paine's belief. Now, I think that. 
even though Thomas Paine was introduced to Native Americans by Ben Franklin and that Ben Franklin had a deep, I would say, some deep abiding friendships in Native America, uh, particularly with Chief Kanaostego, um, I would say that that was a little bit of a naive belief tinged with slight bit of racism and misunderstanding of Native culture because Native culture changed and evolved like all cultures over time. And so the, the, the belief of the colonists sometimes was that this Native culture was this ideal culture because it had remained that way. They thought it was kind of almost a an initial state of humankind. And they wanted to adopt as much of that as they deemed possible. They also recognized that their culture, that uh, you know, which had different certain different principles like money, taxes, and whatnot, would need to do certain things differently. But I will remember, you know, we were talking about this before, Ben Franklin. Ben Franklin was so instrumental in creating the Articles of Confederation that was based on the Iroquois Great Law of Peace. And in those Articles of Confederation, the states only paid taxes on a voluntary basis, which ended up not working in the Revolutionary War because the, the country became in debt, the states became in debt, and they didn't have the means to pay it, or they didn't want to pay it, and they didn't have any way to force them to pay it. So... That's why they had to redo things. Jumping around a little bit, let's go um, a little forward in time now to Abraham Lincoln. He's regarded uh, by many as the great liberator, the man who liberated the slaves, and uh, yet his policies towards Native Americans were was largely, uh, even though he was from a different party, a continuation of the Indian Wars of uh, Andrew Jackson. Yes, I think that's a very fair statement. Now, I, I say in my book that we don't know for certain what would have happened if Abraham Lincoln had completed a second term, but there's no indication that Abraham Lincoln was about to reverse his policies toward Native Americans in a dramatic way. But well, we, we can't know for certain because his policies toward African Americans was one where he was really just uh, against the expansion of slavery into new states when he started. Um, it was the Civil War that forced his hand, and he ended up liberating the the slaves. Um, but I don't, see, I don't see how he would have done something similar to Native Americans. Because here's the thing, the people that were against the expansion of slavery to new states um, were not against the expansion generally for idealistic uh, means. There were not, there were some, I mean, William Lloyd Garrison, there were certainly very, very strong abolitionists who did so for all the right reasons. But most of them were against the expansion of slavery to new states simply because they didn't want slave owners to control those new states. They wanted to have the white lower and middle class population have an opportunity to succeed. Uh, and that's why they were there. The, the concept of manifest destiny, which, you know, goes into overdrive under James Polk or something is still it's there all along. And and uh, Abraham Lincoln is one of the one of the big contributors to that, because he did a lot of things, including the Homestead Act, where he gives 
you know, how many acres, 160 acres to each, each, each American citizen, or even somebody that says they want to become an American citizen. And so all they have to do is live for five years on the land and take care of it. Um, and then he built the transcontinental railroad all the way to the West coast, which is a huge audacious project equivalent to Eisenhower's, uh, project in the 1950s. He does all of this. Um, and that, that is why the white population expands to the, uh, uh, to the West, because if they were to go doing it on wagon trains, it would have taken a much, much longer time, but they, but they built the train and he did so many other things to support that too. He built the train. Um, and then he, he set up a, the, uh, department of agriculture to support farmers. Um, he, sets up the principle of each state having their own college, which creates an economic and educational hub in every state. He did all those things. Some of these you could argue are really tremendous things, but for native Americans, it was not. And it was also not, it was a horrible thing for, for Plains Indians and for the bison that they depended upon, because as I'm sure, you know, you've heard, seen the horror stories when they were building the train they shot bison on sight, never bothering to collect or eat the carcasses. And uh, to them, the bison were this annoyance that stopped the train from running. So they just shot them as fast as they could. And I think there also was a reason of trying to starve the Plains Indians. Uh, so they did all these things. And then they fought wars against the Plains Indians with the help of the U.S. military and so, yes, Lincoln is a force for continuing the same Indian removal. I mean, in some, in some minor ways, small ways, Lincoln was a kinder, compassionate more person compared to an Andrew Jackson. I mean, there were 300 Indians that were supposed to be put to death due to war crimes. I don't really know if those war crimes were true or not, but, but of those 300, Lincoln spared all but 39 of them. Um, that was great for the other, whatever, 240 odd, but not good for the 39. He, did, he, he didn't spare. Um, and yeah, the overall force of Indian removal continued under Lincoln. Absolutely. This history is so rich. There's so much to get into. A couple of points I want to touch on. Um, the Indian Removal Act that Andrew uh, Jackson really was responsible for, as I recall, his, his concern was that foreign armies like the Spanish or, or the French, I suppose, might invade the United States and make an alliance with the uh, Cherokee and the other Indian nations on the East Coast. That was the, the pretext, I guess, uh, or one of the pretexts for, for removing them to the other side of the Mississippi River. Yes, that's what he said. I mean, there's no real basis for that belief, but that was, I, I think, you know, what I, wrote in the book is that many times Andrew Jackson is not the only president that has used the pretext of white supremacy in, or you or, or has used white supremacy supremacy in the pretext of national security. That's what he was doing. And that's the argument that he made. And he was able to make that argument successfully. I mean, he, he had his enemies, Andrew Jackson, but 
But he did win election, and he won election again, and he did all these things. And uh, it's only after he leaves that we actually have the Democratic Party. But, yeah. I believe uh, his successor was James Polk, who was the uh, president uh, the, most associated with the philosophy of manifest destiny. Now, we, we've referred to it quite a bit in terms of the uh, go west young man and the uh, movement of settlers west of the Mississippi. Uh, but let's talk a little bit about the philosophy of Manifest Destiny. You're right that it's mostly associated with Polk, and Polk is the one who, who prosecutes the war against uh, Mexico, you know, and, and, cre and, and gets all those, uh, all those states, uh, um, Texas, and, you know, they, they, become, they become American territories and then become American states. Um, no manifest destiny. This, this is uh, well. Let, let's define it. It's the right and the destiny of uh, of white America to spread out across the entire uh, continent. Yeah, I I wanted to make that point clear because I I suspect there may be viewers who were not familiar with the term. Okay, um, but you know. Overall, though, um, I, I like Abraham Lincoln as a president, and I apologize to my Native American friends to say that even, because, because, uh, because he was not good to Native America. But here's the interesting thing. I, I later compare Abraham Lincoln and Barack Obama. I, I really believe Barack Obama is, the, uh, is possibly even the reincarnation of Abraham Lincoln. Now, think about it. They're both tall and thin with big ears. Um, they, both, they even have a mole on the same side. Um, I don't say this in the book because I just say that he might as well be the reincarnation of Abraham Lincoln. But we're talking, and you are a, 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 a student of the paranormal. Um, so I really, truly believe that he is the reincarnation of Abraham Lincoln. Hey, they both were not born in Illinois. They came from far away, Obama from Hawaii, you know, uh, uh, Lincoln, relatively far away, you know, um, uh, Kentucky, I think, uh, you know, Indiana and, and, and to Illinois. Um, and they both serve a very short term in Congress before they become president during very divisive times. Abraham Lincoln is the president who frees the slaves. Barack Obama is the first African-American president. Barack Obama takes the oath of office using Abraham Lincoln's Bible. Well, Barack Obama is a student of Lincoln and has the same kind of character. They're both very intellectual. They're both good storytellers. Um, there's a lot of commonality. Um, and, uh, uh, and they have a similar, mostly they have a similar kind of character. They're cool under pressure. They're poised under pressure. You know, we would say no drama Obama. Well, Lincoln had a lot of drama in his life a lot of drama. He lost two of his four sons while he was in office. There were a lot of issues uh, uh, that he had personally. Um, and some of them were probably very much avoidable because he was taking mercury as a, uh, a medicine um, to avoid, I can't what it, remember what it was, maybe a tuberculosis or something. Something was prescribed for him then, and that contributed to some forms of uh, melancholy, but, but Lincoln was, was quite ethical, 
in a lot of ways. And I'm not trying to give him a pass about what happened to Native America, but we, with, it, it is helpful to put these things in historical context. Um, and I think that uh, the dehumanization of Native America that began under Jackson was well in place. It was a tacit way of viewing uh, the Native American issue by the time Lincoln comes in. So I think that that is, again, I'm not trying to give him a pass there, but I'm just saying that is probably a major contribu- contributor to the fact that he had a blind spot there. And not only do you compare Lincoln with Obama, but you compare Lincoln's successor, Andrew Johnson, with Obama's successor, Donald Trump. Oh, yeah. You know, I started out believing that uh, I was going to be comparing Donald Trump more to Andrew Jackson. Certainly, Steve Bannon hoped that people would make that comparison. Steve Bannon was the was the was the one who was really the architect of a lot of Trump's policies and the one that pushed Trump to put the the portrait of Andrew Jackson in the Oval Office, um, which Trump had meetings with Native American elders who were standing in front of that portrait, which was really. A very cruel thing to do. Um, but yeah, no, there actually are far more similarities to Andrew Johnson and Trump than Andrew Jackson and Trump. With, with Andrew Jackson, yeah, they both were forces for white males, you know, but, but with Andrew Johnson was very much a, a, a strange selection for Lincoln as vice president, but he was chosen because, or a, a Democrat was chosen because Lincoln wanted to unite the country. So he chose a vice president from the opposite party. I don't think it's ever been done since. It's been talked about, but it's never been done since. And you can see why, because, you know, Lincoln was assassinated and then Andrew Johnson comes in and just like Trump tries to reverse everything Obama's done, Andrew Johnson tries to reverse what Lincoln's done. But Andrew Johnson has, doesn't have success in a lot of ways doing that at all, because uh, Andrew Johnson has a Republican majority in the Congress by far. So they did not like Andrew Johnson in similar ways that, that uh, some Congress people don't like Trump, but are careful. They don't like his his attitude, his, his, uh, um, it's not even the mendacity. It's the, it's, it's the audacity of, of, uh, attacking. I mean, if you really talk to Republicans privately, they, they've never been in support of Donald Trump. There was no Republicans in the Republican at all in Congress that supported Trump until I think it was, uh, Sessions. Jeff Sessions, who becomes the attorney who, who supports him, right? You know, and, and you see what happened there. But, you know, but, but he got in anyway. But Andrew Johnson was, was really vulgar. He, he had big riots. He insisted on loyalty from his, uh, the people working from him. And the reason why Andrew Johnson got impeached was because he fired somebody and they had something called the Tenure Act then. So you couldn't fire people just without cause, um, which now you can. But that is the pretense for impeaching Johnson. But the real reason they impeached him is they just didn't like him. You know, which you could argue, and the Republicans have argued, certainly, that that was the real reason Trump was impeached. 
I would completely agree, but but that is contributing factor certainly. Um, so they were both very similar in that in that way. Yeah, it's it's there's huge parallels. The issue of racism obviously comes up uh, when we talk about our contemporary politics. Uh, you make a point of uh, giving Trump credit for acknowledging that uh, many of the early presidents, the founding fathers like George Washington, Thomas Jefferson were slaveholders. He wasn't trying to cover that history up. You're, you're opening the window to talk about Donald Trump now. Yes, in the in my book, I I portray Donald Trump as a trickster figure. Um, now, not a not a conscious trickster figure like in the Lakota Heoka tradition, that consciously acts in a contrarian manner to awaken the consciousness of someone else. In Trump's case, I don't think it's conscious; it's unwitting. But he has become a vessel for being a trickster figure, which which upends everything and still gives us an opportunity to change. And I would say that consciousness is being awakened. So at one point in the book, I make a, a bold statement, I would say. I say that Donald Trump is both the, the biggest liar of any president and a truth teller who will tell things that no other president would dare to mention. And what you just spoke about, Jeff, is exactly one of those instances where and this happened during Charlottesville, which was not a, you know, not a good moment for Donald Trump, but, you know, where he defends neo-Nazis as being, you know, there are very fine people on both sides. But in that, in that same discussion, it is when he says that, what are we going to do? He points at the statue of, you know, Robert F. Lee says, what are we going to do? We're going to take down the statues of George Washington. He was a slave owner. What about Thomas Jefferson? Are we going to take down the statues of Thomas Jefferson? You know, where does it stop? He says something like that. And that was extraordinary because I've never heard any American president, including Barack Obama, ever say, make mention of the fact that our early founding fathers were slave owners. Um, it's one of those things that gets swept under the rug that is understood among academics, but is not something that that typically comes to the light of day. And of course, it's fair to say that Trump uh, gained popularity during the Obama years by attacking Obama as uh, possibly not even having been born in the United States, trying to undermine uh, his legitimacy as, as a president, an attack that, we, uh, that, that even Trump has acknowledged uh, was baseless. I believe that that Donald Trump had the advantage of essentially running for the office for five years. And one of the ironies is that it was Barack Obama who, who at the uh, correspondence dinner made such delicious fun of Donald Trump, you know, um, but that kind of backfired on Barack Obama because I think that's when Trump's hatred toward Obama hardened. And when he probably made a determination to go after Obama in any way he could, that was around 2011. And it's right around that time that uh, uh, Trump flirted with running in 2012, but doesn't. You know, he ends up backing Mitt Romney. Um, and but then for the next five years, he surreptitiously is running for president because he is the face 
of the birther movement. And he didn't invent it. That was Jerome Corsi. But Donald Trump becomes the face of this movement. And so it really gives him a head start in coalescing a uh, um, this backlash to Barack Obama, a legitimate president who served for two terms, but Trump's effort is to delegitimize his presidency. And I'm sorry, I think it's fairly obvious that the Tea Party movement, which was ostensibly a movement uh, for fiscal conservatism, um, was at least co-opted by, if we really are given the benefit of the doubt, it was co-opted by racist elements. I mean, it's hard to argue with that. And uh, Donald Trump, here's the thing, though, I... I, I don't want to sound negative about Trump because I it may be that the presidency of Donald Trump was inevitable um, in a certain way. Um, and I see him as an apocalyptic president, but in the original meaning of the word, which is an unveiling or a revelation. So like you were speaking about before, Donald Trump has put into play forces that 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 reveal an ugly side of America that some of us didn't know existed. I, for one, was shocked with Charlottesville to hear, you know, Jews will not replace us, to see neo-Nazis chanting that. Um, I was shocked. But but the truth is I shouldn't have been shocked because there's been an anti-Jewish, uh, uh, anti-Semitic contingent in America all along. It became part of the KKK in the 1920s with the second rebirth of the KKK. It's always been there. So Donald Trump has just created an environment where the, where the true shadow side of America is being revealed for all to see. I mean, it's getting very ugly even right now, but there is a benefit here in seeing America as it truly is then we are in a position to make actual substantive change. As long as we ignore or repress something that truly exists and we just push it away, we'll never be able to change. So one might say that uh, at this point in American history, the uh, it's incumbent upon us to do what the Jungians would call shadow work. We have to look at our own shadow. We have to acknowledge it. Yes, yes. And another, and, and, and something that we haven't discussed yet is the influence on, of Native America on the 19th century women's movement. And I want to I bring that in too, because that's another huge shadow element in America that has not been revealed. And I think that we found out in the Trump-Clinton election that the country is more sexist, perhaps, uh, than racist. We did have an African-American president who was elected for two terms, but we still have yet to elect a woman president. Now, why is that? So I think the history of women in America is usually important. And I just want to briefly sketch that out if we have time. We will take the time. Okay, good, good. Because first of all, most people believe that the founding fathers did not give the the right to women to vote. And that's only part tr partly true. They actually took it away from them. So, 
So in when we when we were set up in the colonies, if you were a property owner, you did have to. If you were a property owner, you could you could vote. You had a voice in the colonies, and that even included some African Americans who were who had somehow acquired property. They were able to vote. Also, women were able to vote. Um, when the the founding fathers did not totally take it away from them, but they gave the power to the states to design the laws. And so the states started to design laws that said, define voters as white male property owners. And that's really was the thrust. But there are some odd things, like all the way up to 1807 in New Jersey, I think it was true that, that women could vote and also African-Americans could vote. So, so if they, I think they had to own property, but that was it, you know. So, so there's some strange quirks there. So the women's movement is not just this forward movement. So there, it goes forward and stops and starts. But here's the most interesting thing. How did the 19th century women's movement start? Now, uh, I almost want to read part of the book. Can I do that, Jeff? <laughs> okay, go ahead. This is the influence of Native America on the 19th century women's movement. How did the first radical suffragists of the United States, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Lucretia Mott, and Matilda Gage, come to a vision of equality for women? All of these women were living in 19th century America, a time when a woman fleeing a violent husband would be routinely returned to him by police, just as runaway slaves were returned to their masters. How did these women who lived in a society where they were required to pay taxes but had no voice in the direction of government, could not vote, could not run for office, lost all property rights once they married, had no right of divorce, and if they separated from their husbands, lost all custody rights to their children, whose oppression was sanctioned by the Bible? with their husbands having the legal right and religious responsibility to physically discipline them. How in the world did these women, who were not even permitted to speak aloud in church, have the courage to ask for equal rights? They did so because they were living nearby Native women who befriended them and showed them another way. These Native women were fully equal in their society. Their responsibilities were in balance with men. Their children were members of the mother's clan, and they controlled their own use of property. The Native women's work was satisfying and done alongside other women, as opposed to the mostly isolated drudgery of the colonial household. And they were responsible for agriculture in addition to the home life. Moreover, the women were understood to be spiritually related to Mother Earth, herself a relationship that ensured respect. And that's enough to read. But, you know, the, the thing is, uh, this was not a coincidence. These happen to be the same Haudenosaunee, the, 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 the Iroquois nations that influenced these founding mothers. They were living in upstate New York. And they showed them another way. Because these women, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Lucretia Mott, Matilda Gage, Susan B. Anthony comes in later, by the way, um, they were told in their own societies that, that women had held then the highest position that they've ever held in any society. 
And when they met the Native American women, they realized how much of a lie that was. And so they sought complete equality. And it's only after Susan B. Anthony comes in and she becomes very famous for being arrested trying to vote that they scale back their ambitions and they seek to uh, only get suffrage. But that's just as a first step toward equality. And the other interesting thing, which I do talk about in the book, is how closely the abolitionist movement and the women's movement are tied together. They're tied very closely together for a long time. And it's only as the Civil War is ending and the possibility of suffrage for black men comes into play that uh, Frederick Douglass and, and Elizabeth Cady Stanton have a they have an uncomfortable parting of the ways because uh, Stanton wanted the two to stay in lockstep. She claimed that if, if black suffrage came first, the women's movement would be set back for decades. And she was right. But Douglas claimed that if they tried to, if they stayed together and they didn't take the opportunity to have black suffrage, that they both might be set back for decades. And he could have been right also. We don't know. But so this this was really this is a huge shadow element and it still hasn't been adequately addressed. I do try to address it in my book in chapters talking about what happened with Hillary Clinton, um, because I think it's very, very important. And I do think that it is this is a benefit of uh, Donald Trump's presidency. It's a surprise benefit. But you see, Trump becomes uh, president. And on day one, we have the Women's March. Millions of women march all over the world. It's really the largest movement ever worldwide. It's not just the United States movement. But because of that, in the United States, more women were recruited than ever before to run for office, and more women won than ever before. And this is a beautiful thing. And uh, uh, and I think it's going to have a much more lasting effect long after Trump is out of office. What we're talking about is uh, ultimately symbolized in the uh, image that's the logo of this TV series, The Yin Yang, which says, you, you know, every everything contains within itself the seed of its own opposite. The Dance of the Opposites, uh, which is uh, the section of of your book. That, that we've just reviewed. Uh, this has been a real pleasure. Uh, thank you so much for being with me, my friend. Oh, well, pleasure is mine. Thank you. Oh, thank you, Jeff. Be well. And for those of you viewing, thank you for being with us. <laughs>